Hey, howdy, space nerds. By the time this episode drops in your podcast apps, it will be celebrating its first birthday. I can't believe it's been a year since we started exploring space together. When this station launched Are We There Yet, I had no idea just how many people would enjoy tuning in each and every week. And now as this podcast nears half a million downloads, it's clear to me that listeners really enjoy learning about space exploration. And for that, I wanted to genuinely thank you all for your support. The year ahead is full of great guests talking about amazing things, and we're also in the early stages of developing a new mini-series exploring more in-depth the overall goal of colonizing Mars. So stay listening. We've also launched a Facebook page to continue the discussion from these episodes online. You can search for Are We There Yet? podcast, and I'll catch you all there. Again, thank you so much for your support. I've had a lot of fun exploring space exploration together. From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Bruce Melnick has been to space twice, once on Space Shuttle Discovery and again on Endeavour's first flight. Now he spends his days talking to folks at the Kennedy Space Center's visitor complex about his time as an astronaut and what it's like to live and work in space. I took the short drive out to the KSC Visitor Complex to meet up with Bruce. We talked about what it's like waiting for liftoff, the smells of space travel, and how you navigate your behind when going to the bathroom in space. So Bruce, I want to go back to October 1990, launch a discovery. Walk me through those moments as you're walking down the crew access arm, you're getting into, into into your seat and you're waiting for that countdown to hit zero. What's going through your mind at that point? Brent, it's funny, I, I talk about that when I do the astronaut encounter here because a lot of people have asked that because I was a mission specialist one and two sitting behind the commander and pilot as mission specialist one on Discovery on both my flights. I had to wait for the commander and pilot to get in their seats because they used my seat as a way to climb into their seats. And so I got to stand out there on the orbiter access arm and looking at the vehicle until they all got strapped in and it was just awesome. And then when it was my turn to get strapped in, I was laying on my back and then the closeout crew had us all strapped in. They closed the hatch. I can tell you that on both of my flights, laying there on my back, I fell asleep. <laughs> it was the most relaxed I had been in you know three years. I didn't have anybody telling me what to do. No one asked me any questions. No one giving me emergency procedures. Didn't have any doctors you know poking me or probing me. It, it was just a time to lay back and get ready to go fly. It's the calm before the storm, yeah, right? Really, but I never thought it was a storm. I thought it was a start, the the calm before the out of the blocks race. So let's once once you do hear that starting gun and you hit zero and those engines start to fire, does that change at all? And what how do you feel at that point? Well, you're busy. You know, every one of us that's up in the flight deck has some system to monitor, some gauges to look at, some checkouts to be watching, to watch where you are, watch different parameters. So as soon as you you know, hit T minus seven seconds and the engines start to come up, then off you go at T zero. Everyone's busy. You're really kind of busy watching everything until you get to staging. And then after that, it's just a nice smooth ride going uphill. What's that moment you realize, hey, I'm in space now? It's when uh, you get to Miko 
you get to Miko, and all of a sudden, you know, you, right before Miko, you're pushed back in your seat at three Gs, three Gs throttling, and you know it's actually a little difficult to breathe, a little difficult to talk. You know, it's not painful or anything. It's just you know uncomfortable because you're pushing against your chest. But then you come to Miko, and it's boom, instantaneous zero G, and it's quiet and it's smooth, and you don't feel like you're moving. And but you're now you're traveling at seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. And then my very first job as a rookie on my first flight was to take a picture of the external tank. So you get off, so you get to Miko, you do ET SEP, you know, external tank separation, and then the commander starts pitching, in this case, Discovery over on her back, so I could take a picture of the external tank through the overhead window. And as he's pitching Discovery over on its back, the first thing I see is the limb of the earth. And I got so distracted just seeing the planet for the first time from space, I pretty much forgot to take a picture of the tank until Dick said, why don't you take it pictures? And did you expect that reaction? Like, I'm sure you had run that through your mind thousands of no. times before going up there, right? No, that that's something that, no, I, I didn't. I didn't know what to expect. I, you know, I was so focused on doing the job and getting the job done right. You know, I, I, you know, as soon as we got to Miko, I got out of my straps. I floated down, got the camera, went up to the overhead window, and all that stuff was just like training. But then, boom, there's the planet. It's like I didn't think about this. You know, it's cool. Now, many astronauts. I've read suffer from space adaptation syndrome. Did, did you have any symptoms of that when you were up there? And is what you expected? Every astronaut suffers from space adaptation syndrome. You, you can't not get it. I mean, you, when your inner ear shuts down, um, that's gonna, that creates a disconnect between your eyes and your head. When your digestive system shuts down, that makes anything you eat bounce around in your stomach till you get accustomed to it. When your body says, I no longer need all this extra hydrostatic in my lower extremities, your body starts getting rid of, rid of all this fluid through urination or through your sinuses, and it just gives you a, a swelled up head. So everybody experiences space adaptation syndrome. It's just a matter of how sick some people get compared to others. And on my first flight, I, I never vomited, but I had SAS and knew that how to just be careful and you know take things on a slow bell till you adapt what did that feel like well you just it's it's out of sorts i mean when you go and move your head and your eyes don't move with your head and then they that 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 they catch up you say whoa that's that doesn't feel real good and you know it's kind of like if you have if you've ever done a lot of aerobatics in an airplane you know it's one of those things where your body is not accustomed to those feelings so it starts to react so if you keep your head, you know, nice and still. Some some people can't avoid it. There's been some people that, you know, I flew with a, another crewman that he was a, a, a backseater and he would get sick pretty much every time we went out in a T-38 and he got sick in space, but he loved to fly and he loved space. And, you you know, when, once you get up there, um, I was the flight doc on both of my flights. And one of the things we got trained to do is to give injections if you need it, medications. And on both my flights, I had to um, medicate several of my crews with an injection with Fenergan to keep that nausea down so they could, you know, continue to do work without, you know, vomiting. Is there anything you think you could, you could have done better for training or, or being prepared for that or just something you have to deal with? Brendan, it's, it's one of those things where people that get seasick violently can go up in space and never get sick. People that get air, if there's just no correlation, that's at least back when I was flying, it'd been years, maybe they've learned some things now, but back when I was flying, there was absolutely no correlation between anything you did on the earth and how you react 
to space. About how long did it take for, for you personally to, to kind of get adjusted to that and, and start feeling a little normal? Probably two and a half days is probably oh, a wow. good good average. Yeah, your first day. Well, and and I'm talking about the whole picture. Mm-hmm. You're you're you don't even feel like eating for the first day, and if you do, uh, just like if you eat a chunk of solid food, I mean it just bounces around inside your stomach, and that's kind of a weird feeling. You're not used to that, but then eventually, about a day and a half, it starts to figure it out. Or I don't know what your stomach does differently. Maybe surface tension takes effect, but. About a day and a half. Some people take three or four days, and you know, there's some famous astronauts. Most of them, hate to say it, payload specialists. But you know, the, but some of them, you know, they they've named scales of how sick you are after them. <laughs> right? Wasn't it a senator that went up there then? <laughs> well, I wasn't going to make say any names. They call it the Jake Garn scale. <laughs> now, this might be a strange question, but what does it smell like up there? What does space smell like? Well, you know, you're not smelling space. You're smelling the environment you're in. But what's interesting about that to me is, you know, we make our own air. We, we blend nitrogen and oxygen, make our own air. We have scrubbers that scrub the air, carbon dioxide and lithium hydroxide canisters. But I, I talk about this with, when I talk to people about over at the dine with an astronaut over here, is how foods and things taste different to me up there, and I think quite a bit everybody else, and it's because if you leave your home for a while and then you come back, your house has a an odor or a scent. It's not a bad smell. It's just that when you walk open your door after being gone for a week, you say, yeah, I'm home. I smell my house. But how long does that last? Five minutes? You know, five minutes later, you don't smell it. Well, in this shuttle, you know, we were generating our own air, recycling our own air or scrubbing it. And before long, those smells probably build up in there, but you don't notice them. So you don't smell space. You just, you know, it's just like breathing air anywhere else. But it made food taste different. Some foods that I enjoyed on the surface of the earth were were horrible in space. Some things that I probably wouldn't even try to eat on the surface of the earth were great in space. But I think that's all about the atmosphere and the taste buds. And, you know, both my landings, we landed at Edwards Air Force Base. So we're at 4,000 foot sea level. So when we took off, we're at sea level or in space we're at sea level because we keep the cabin pressurized. So when we landed Edwards and those guys popped the hatch at 4,000 feet, all of that smell from inside the shuttle, yeah, you generate an odor inside the <laughs> shuttle. But it's, it's, space doesn't smell, but inside the shuttle you generate your own atmosphere. Now, you flew on both Discovery and Endeavor, and it was Endeavor's first flight. Did she have a new shuttle smell? Like a car yeah, kind of. Yeah, really. It it it, it was. It was kind of neat getting an Endeavor. It it was kind of like a new car smell. Everything you know, maybe a little fresh painty. Yeah, it was. It was pretty cool. Did you leave your mark anywhere in there? Did you sign anything or leave something behind? Uh, not not while we were flying, but I actually was out at Palmdale when Endeavor was being built. That was one of my collateral assignments, and I I think I left a little something inside a wing. Well, this question always comes out when I see you folks come talk to the general public, and and usually it's from a little kid. And they ask, well, how do you go to the bathroom in space? What do you think about getting that question from, from the, the young folks? It's not always the young folks. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, I actually, when I give my presentations here at the Space Center, Visitor Center, um, I have several slides ready to go just prepared to answer that question. And it starts with a picture of the toilet, and then I talk about the difference between if you have to go number one or if you have to go number two. And um, anyway, it's it's I, it, it's a little bit humorous, and, but it's you know it's a it's a bathroom, and you've got to 
use vacuum instead of gravity to make it all work. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just a, a fact of life, a human process, but I make it, I think most people think it's kind of comical the way I describe it. <laughs> Ballpark, how much training did it take for you to use that, that, uh, that space toilet? Well, that's a, probably a, a lot of people don't realize, but we actually have a toilet simulator over in Houston. And you can imagine when, you know, when things float around free, there's certain things you don't want to share. And one of them is anything that comes out of the body. So they actually have a toilet over in Houston that's got a video camera down underneath the hole in the seat. And so they, and you have a, so you get to watch yourself positioning yourself in a video display while you're sitting over the seat to make sure the holes line up. And of course, you don't have that video camera when you're up in space, but we do have something that we use. And behind you on the bulkhead, you know, there's Velcro all over the place. Well, on the back bulkhead, we've put a mirror back there so that you can see what you're doing. You know what we call the mirror? the rear view mirror. So that's a trivia question. If anyone ever asks where the rear view mirror is on a space shuttle, it's in the bathroom. Now, you were a mission specialist on, on both of your assignments. Um, what's the most challenging part about working in space and doing the particular things that, that you had to do on, on your mission? The training was awesome. And matter of fact, I'll, I'll even come right out and say it. The training sometimes, for example, in operating the remote manipulator system or a Canadian arm, as people call it, Sometimes it was just over overbearing. You know, I, I made the comparison how it only took me 212 hours to be able to fly two different airplanes and helicopters and be an unrestricted naval aviator and fly everything in the inventory. And when I was get, getting training on the arm, you know, it was like twice that for operating a crane. And I said, you know, that's a little overkill. But a lot of that was to train the trainers. I understand that, you know, as times passed. Um, but the only difficulty or thing that got a little tough was when I was on my second flight. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but it was the Intelsat reboost mission or the Intelsat rescue mission. That was a lot of spacewalks, right? Yeah, a lot of spacewalks, and I was the arm operator. And when you're operating the arm, you know, you, you can't just free float. You have to have your feet in foot restraints, and then you've got a rotational hand controller and a translational hand controller. And that's how you control the arm while you're looking out the window or looking at some of your video screens for the cameras. Well, we had such a struggle with grabbing that satellite. We, you know, it kept bouncing off the capture bar. I mean, we, we ended up extending the mission two days because of the, the failures that we had of the capture bar. But the whole time that Pierre was trying to grab the satellite, I'm sitting there trying to operate the arm with very, very, you know, very, a lot of finesse because it's, you know, he's out there messing with a 9,000 pound satellite and, and you don't want to damage anything. At the end of the, at the end of the two days of trying to catch that satellite with no success, my legs and shins had cramped up so bad that I, you know, I really had to massage them bad because I had to react. I, you have nothing to react against except your foot restraints. But that was the only tough thing that there was ever there. Everything else was, the training's great and everything worked good, knock on wood. You live here in, in uh, on Florida Space Coast. Uh, you, you do a lot of these um, meet and greets with, with folks at, at the Kennedy Space Center. How important is it to get out there and talk to the general public and talk about the work that, that you've done and talk about the work that's being done with, with the space program? Well, here on the Space Coast, and just, just a slight change to that, I now live on the west coast okay. of Florida, so okay. I'm not real close, but I do get over here, you know, four or five times a year. But over here, you're really preaching to the choir. 
So here it's not as important as it is, say, even over on the west coast of Florida. Or, I mean, they, they don't even get coverage of launches on TV over there. So, you know, that's, that's important. You know, I take advantage of any time. But, you know, quite frankly, here you're preaching to the choir. The only thing that's changed here is with the loss of flying the space shuttle here, no astronauts come through here. You know, it used to be we always came down here, a crew of five, crew of seven would come in, would come in for TCDT, Terminal Countdown Demonstration Test. Still remember the acronyms. Uh, <laughs> I'm still learning them. <laughs> okay. But, you know, you know, for a week you'd have a crew of six or seven running around Cocoa Beach talking to people and everything. And, of course, when you came down for launch, you're in quarantine, but, but there was crew members that worked here. I was a, what they called a Cape Crusader, which is really an ASP, a astronaut support person, where I, I would commute to the Cape every week from Houston, fly my T-38 jet, and I was out in town, you know, the, the whole time I was here working. So, again, that's preaching to the choir. What they've lost now is we don't have any astronauts coming through here to do that. So we come here and at the visitor center, and that's about the only way we get the word out. Well, that, that should be changing soon with, with commercial crew being – a retired astronaut yourself and, and going through it, what kind of advice do you have for the next class of, of astronauts that will be coming through uh, Kennedy Space Center here? Oh, I don't, you know what? It, it, it's been so long, and things have changed so much, and they're flying a different spaceship. I mean, we were flying something that was very comparable to an airplane or a helicopter, you know, a lot faster, but, you know, you controlled it, you opened payload bay doors, you operated things. Now everyone's going to be flying a capsule. So... I don't know what kind of advice to give those guys. It'd be better for the Apollo guys to give them advice because I'm not clear on that concept. I'll, I'll just, I wish we were still flying the shuttle. You know, they were built to have a 100-flight service life, um, and I know it came down to you can't fly the shuttle, you can't you know, afford. You can't afford to fly the shuttle, you can't afford to build a new rocket, and you can't afford to maintain and operate space station, you know, with the dollars that we have. But, boy, I just, uh, the shuttle was a magnificent flying machine, and I, I would really like to see something come back that takes its place and, and can do the same mission. Now, have you gone to visit Discovery and Endeavor where they are now? I've visited uh, Discovery. I've not visited Endeavor out in California. Um, I was up at Uvar Hazy before they took Enterprise out of there, so I saw that there. But so the final resting place is I just haven't been out to see Endeavor yet. But I'm probably going to do that this summer. I have a trip going out there, and I think my wife and I'll swing by. But you can't beat the way they've done Atlantis here. I I think anyone that's been to all the different places has said that what they've done here at the KSC Visitor Center, I mean, it just blows everybody else away. I mean, if you have you been through the exhibit yet? Yeah. I mean, did you get a tear in your eye when the curtain went up? Oh, so cool. Yeah. It's I awesome. mean, it's, if you don't get a tear in your eye when the curtain goes up, it's like, wow. Well, Bruce Melnick, thank you so much for speaking with me. This was incredible. Well, well, thank you, Brendan. That was astronaut Bruce Melnick. We spoke at the astronaut encounter at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Support for Are We There Yet comes from the listeners of WMFE. You can follow the show online. We're on Twitter at AWTYMars or reach out to me in the Twitterverse. I'm at Space Brendan. And remember, we're on Facebook now. Look us up by searching Are We There Yet podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE. Our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>